0: All right, here we go, guys. Uh, Turn to Isaiah 17. Oh, 17, excuse me. We're not that far. Isaiah 7. And uh, let's jump back in here. Kind of left you hanging um, a couple of weeks ago as we got into this famous passage uh, Isaiah 7 14. The virgin will be with child and will bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. Uh, This is one of our favorite Christmas verses. We sing about this at Christmas time. We read it in our Advent readings. And. now, remember at the beginning of our study, you guys said you wanted to do three things, right? Some of you said you wanted to study Isaiah. Some of you said you wanted to study the Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. And still, some others of you said, we want to study the difficult passages of Scripture. And can I, can I just tell you that the trifecta of ideas comes together today in this one text? We're going to talk about Isaiah, we're going to talk about Messianic prophecy, and we're going to talk about a difficult passage all in one. So, so your admission ticket gets you access to all three of those today. Okay, so Isaiah chapter 7 is where we're going. Uh, let's just read it because it's been a little while. Um, and uh, so the section starts in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1. Now, it came about in the days of Ahaz that the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. So just a reminder here real quick, uh, we've got these, um, these names. Now this is under, under your notes, it says review, right? So that's what we're doing right now. There's no way you can write all that in that little space. Uh, you can flip it over on the back if you missed this um, lesson a couple of weeks ago. But just a reminder, Ahaz is the current king of Judah, okay? And remember, Isaiah is prophesying mainly to the the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. Pekah is the current king of Israel. He's a wicked king, like most of the northern kingdom kings were. Rezin is the current king of Aram, which is another name for Syria. And then Aram and Israel joined forces in 734 B.C. to try to ward off the threat of the Assyrian invasion. They attempted to bring Judah under their control, but could not. Okay, So just remember, go back to our geography here. This is what the nation looks like. There's the Assyrian Empire bordered by the... uh, The yellow lines there and that little... Lasers dying here. This little dotted area right here, that's Judah. So they they literally are surrounded. And for those of you over here, we got this little teeny tiny area here. Okay, now, just a footnote on this. This map is drawn after the Assyrians took over the northern kingdom. So you see that Samaria and Syria. Here's Syria up here. Here's Israel or... um, uh, the Northern Kingdom here, you see, they've already come under Assyrian Empire. So this this map it was drawn a little bit after the events that we're looking at here. But the point is, they're surrounded, and uh, so there's great temptation on the part of Ahaz to join this this coalition against the Assyrians because they know sooner or later the Assyrians are going to take over. So uh, here's a here's a, a little close up of it there, where you can see there's Aram, modern day Syria. There's the Northern Kingdom Israel in the pink, and then the purple is Judah. Okay, so that's what we're talking about. So that's the threat. That's what's going on. Um, And uh, when the Arameans, uh, when it was reported to the house of David, verse 2, saying the Arameans have camped in Ephraim, that's the northern kingdom of Israel, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as trees. And you would do that too because, why? Because they know it's just a matter of time, right? We're going to be taken over uh, by these folks. Now, then the Lord, um, notice also the reference to the house of David. That refers to the kingly line of David personified in Ahaz. The house of David was the succession of kings in Israel leading to the Messiah. And that's significant because Ahaz is the current sort of king in the line of David right now. And the point of what Isaiah is going to tell him is, You've got this covenant. You've got this Davidic covenant that guarantees your security till the Messiah comes. So don't freak out that these two kings to the north are threatening you because God has promised he's going to preserve you to the end. Don't worry about that. And uh, one of the things I didn't mention last time is Ahaz is going to reject Isaiah's uh, prophecy here. He's going to reject his counsel. And you know what Ahaz is actually going to do? He's going to call up the Assyrians and say, hey, I've got Israel and I've got Syria coming against me. Will you help me? So Ahaz is going to form an alliance with the enemy. He's going to form an alliance with the Assyrians. That's what's going to happen because he rejects Isaiah's counsel here. OK, so that's what's going on. And so that is, as this develops, the Lord says to Isaiah, go out now. To meet Ahaz, you and your son Shear Yashub, which means uh, the remnant will return, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool, and uh, so Isaiah goes. He takes his son and he he tells Ahaz, look, it's going to be okay. These two kings coming against you will not prosper. But look at verse. Uh, where is it? He says here yeah verse seven thus says the Lord God. it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass see it 's not going to happen the These two kings that are threatening you will not take over, and then He predicts here that within sixty five years, Ephraim, the northern kingdom, will actually be not even inhabited by any Israelites anymore because the Assyrians will so uh, they, they will be so swift in their removal and and uh, killing of of the Israelites, that uh, they will replace them with the Assyrians, and there will no longer be a people in the Northern Kingdom. Okay, so so that's that's kind of where we're at. Okay, that's what's happening. And uh, again, this is all from a couple times ago. Now we get to this little section where we left off last time. So the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, "Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God," because the, the implication is Ahaz doesn't believe this. Ahaz does not believe Isaiah. He does not believe God. Uh, The end of verse 9 makes that clear. Isaiah tells him, if you will not believe, you surely will not last. So if you don't believe what I'm telling you, you will be judged as well. So the Lord says, okay, let me prove it to you. Ask a sign, Ahaz. And Ahaz says, no, I'm not going to test the Lord. And um, now it's not testing the Lord if God has told you to ask for a sign. That's okay to do. So why is Ahaz refusing to ask the Lord for a sign? What's that? His mind mind is made up. Yeah. Yeah. So his mind is made up. And so he gives this he gives this pseudo religious sounding answer, right? Oh, I'm not going to test the Lord. And the reality is he just wants to do what he wants to do. Okay. so God says, okay, if that's the way you like it, then the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look at verse 14. Uh, Actually, let's look at 13 first. Then. He, this is because this is Isaiah's response. Listen now, O House of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of man that you will try the patience of my God as well? Now you need to see this. Who is God talking to through Isaiah in this verse? Are you sure? Look again. Listen now, O. So is he talking to Ahaz? I mean, he, Ahaz is included in the house of David, but he's making a statement now to the whole dynasty, to the whole representation of the house of David. He's making a statement about the Davidic covenant and the succession of kings that were to lead to the Messiah. And so whatever he's going to say about a sign, and you need to get this, the sign is not just for Ahaz. Ahaz. It's for the whole house of David. And that's one of the interpretive keys here. You've got to see it. This is not just a sign for Ahaz. It's for the whole, um, the whole nation. So here's the sign. Here now, all of you, O house of And you remember this because we talked about this. We, we talked about y'all and all y'all and, you know, whether it's plural or singular or context specific. And so in verse 13, when he says, here now, all of you, O house of David, that you is Plural. He's not just talking to Ahaz. He's talking to the whole nation and specifically the house of David. And here's what he says. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son and will call his name Emmanuel. Verse 15. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. And the Lord will bring on you, on your people and on your father's house such days as has never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the remotest part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria, and they will come and settle on the steep ravines, on the ledges of the cliffs, on all the thorn bushes and in all the watering places. And in that day, the Lord will shave with a razor, hired from the regions beyond the Euphrates, that is, the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the legs and it will also be removed also and it will also remove the beard and he goes on to talk about destruction what's he saying he's saying assyria is coming and they are going to turn you into slaves and they are going to destroy your country and it is going to be worse than the day when the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom separated in civil war wow okay so what is the sign How do we understand this? Who is the Lord referring to? Now, we know because we've read our New Testament that the son, the child, Emmanuel, has to be who? Has to be Jesus. We know that. But it seems like this sign is not just something that happens in the future when Jesus comes in Bethlehem. It seems like something that the people needed to realize today. In Ahaz's time, right? And that's, that's where we come up with the, the questions I asked you last time. Now, did you do your homework? We even gave you an extra week. Um, there's three ways that the Messiah can be referenced in the Old Testament. There can be a direct reference to the Messiah as when Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 53 that there will be a servant who comes and is described in that chapter as actually being crucified as a substitute for people there is an allusion or sometimes we call it typology where there's something in the Old Testament that in some way alludes to the Messiah or helps us to understand him better. And a good example of that would be the Passover lamb. You know, Jesus is not a four-legged creature, right? It's not the same thing. But the Passover lamb that dies and whose blood is shed so that judgment is passed over is similar to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? Whose blood is shed so that we do not come under judgment. So that's illusion, right? It's, there's a similarity there when we see that in in a verse like 1 Corinthians 5, 7. And then there's what we call a dual referent where there, there's a, a there's a prophecy usually given in the Old Testament that has an immediate fulfillment, but then it also has a future fulfillment. And we use Psalm 16 as an example of that where David talks about um, God preserving him. He's not going to undergo decay. He's not going to allow his holy one to be, um, uh, what's the language there? Um, You will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. Um, You will not abandon me to Sheol, right? So, um, but we understand from Acts chapter two that uh, Peter gets up on the day of Pentecost and says, you know, that was also talking about Jesus who really truly did not undergo decay when he died, unlike David who did physically die. Okay, so how are we to understand this verse? So what I want to do is I want to walk you through how you would try to figure out how to accurately interpret a difficult passage, okay? And this will spill over a little bit in Dave and Cece's class on Bible study, uh, but this is, this is a difficult passage. There are all sorts of different views on this, and if you've studied this this week, if you've looked in a study Bible or a commentary to try to get some ideas, uh, you'll see that, that people don't agree on this at all. So let's walk through. Now, the first thing that you really need to do is pay attention to the audience. Okay, so what do we know about the audience receiving uh, this prophecy? It's the house of David. Now, that's a clue because this is not a sign just for Ahaz. If it was a sign just for Ahaz, what would that do? That would link it to his life, wouldn't it? And it would be specific to him. But the change, and that, that's where you've got to catch this, and because the New Testament languages have a... I'm sorry to do grammar this early in the morning, but, you know. The languages in the Old Testament have a, you guys. They have a, whoops, hang on. They have a y'all in the plural form and, and Southerners. that's right yes <laughs> you weren't here for this discussion last week uh talk to somebody who was we, we thoroughly went through the all y'all and y'all and we we, we, we <laughs> yeah and and this and you'll notice for all you english teachers in the room this is the southern use of the apostrophe you'll you'll notice it's it's a it's a, it's a subset of the contraction use right but uh but that's very important. But in, in both uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the languages have a you that is plural. Uh, and other than if you have a King James version, the, the King James version, the these and the thous, that's what they're doing is they're actually making a distinction because in the 17th century, English actually had a way to say you, singular, you, plural. Of course, that, has, that got lost now. We don't say that unless we say y'all and all y'all, and if you're consistent in that well we we determine that most most of our church is context specific no you need to know this this is the good stuff we learned last time so context specific so when someone says how are y'all doing the first thing you need to do is say are you talking to me or my whole family right and then that just clarifies it so but that's the first thing you need to know there's a change in language the first part of chapter 7 Isaiah is talking to ahaz specifically but what happens here in verse 13 is there is a change of language. He's not just talking to Ahaz now, he's talking about the whole house of David, and he, uses, he actually uses that term, O house of David, but the you that's used there, ask for yourself, verse 11, is plural, okay? So that should help us. This is, this is a sign for the whole nation and specifically for the kings of the house of David. Here's the second clue. What does virgin mean? Okay. Now, does anybody's Bible version say something other than the virgin will be with child? Yeah, some versions say young maiden. Uh Does anybody have that? I think the RSV does that. So here's what happened. And this is sort of a hundred-year-old debate. It, it, it It reached its peak in the middle of the 20th century. There were a whole bunch of liberal scholars that said, wait a minute. The word used here, the word used in Hebrew that's translated virgin doesn't mean virgin. It can mean young woman who may or may not have been with a man already. So see, it's not the, the virgin birth. It's not some you know, thing that doesn't happen unless God's involved. It's just a girl gets pregnant and has a baby. And that's what they said. And um, without getting too technical here, uh, in the Hebrew language, there's two different words. In the Old Testament, the language, uh, as you know, was written uh, in Hebrew. And there are two different um, words that can be translated, uh, young woman or virgin. And uh, one of those words um is more narrow, it's more specific in specifying the virginity of the young woman. And that's what a lot of the liberal liberal scholars said, is they said, see, that word isn't used here. The word that's used in Isaiah 7.14 is a different word. It's not the real narrow word that always means virgin. But the reality is, the reality is, um, we have good biblical evidence that the word that is used here does in fact mean a virgin and um so that is a legitimate question and when when you study up on this when you do your word studies uh, for those of you that know how to do that um when you do your cross-referencing looking for the same word used in different contexts you got to work through all this um but suffice it to say that the the scholarship today, based on how the Bible itself uses this word, uh, is that virgin is the likely meaning. Okay? But we do have to work through that. Number three, what exactly is the sign? Can I go back yeah, you sure can. Okay, so in Matthew 2, where they quote, they quote this, Right. Matthew 2, mm-hmm. using uh, Greek. Mm-hmm. We will get to that in just a minute, but I'm glad you asked that. I'm glad you're thinking ahead. Okay. Yeah. No, no, you're good. You're good. What's the sign? This is probably the hardest question to really answer here. What is the actual sign? Okay. Yeah, we'd say a virgin being pregnant is kind of an odd thing. And that's true. That's part of the sign. And the name. Okay. Keep reading. See, we focus in on 14 and we forget that's only half of the sign. Okay. Well, it says before he will refuse evil and choose good. Okay. 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 All right. Keep reading. I'm going, to, I'm going to make your brain hurt this morning, and I'm sorry, but but this this is really important stuff. So. The land okay. The kind of okay. So the sign is that the land that the two kings threatening Judah, their land will be desolate. That's the sign. And how does Emmanuel fit into this prophecy, this sign that the land of the two kings will be desolate? How does he fit into that? Does it say he's going to eat Chick-fil-A there? What does it say? What is that? did, Did anybody have curds and honey for breakfast this morning? Is it a Kellogg cereal, curds and honey? What is that? Yeah, yeah, curds would be like what we would think of as cottage cheese uh, and honey. We know what honey is, right? So when it says, Emmanuel will eat curds and honey, we just kind of look over that like, okay, that's kind of weird. Okay, let's go to the next verse. What does that mean? Don't don't stop or, or don't move on until you've stopped and figured out what does it mean that Emmanuel will eat curds and honey? What's that? There's all the provisions gone. There's nothing to eat. That's right. There's no There's nothing to right. Okay. Did you hear what, what, what Brian Jean said? The provisions are gone. There's nothing less left to eat. Why is there nothing left to eat? Because the, land- because the land's been decimated. How do you know that? Yeah, you've got to keep reading. You keep... See, See, this is what we do. In Bible study, we get so focused on the verse that we're interested in that we forget what the broader context says. We forget that it's not just the virgin will be with child and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. That's part of the sign. But if you keep reading, this Emmanuel is going to eat curds and honey. That is the diet of poverty. And why is that weird? It's weird because Emmanuel is this really, really, really important figure who's born into poverty. Okay, you with me? Well, how do we know it's poverty, right? Just keep reading. Look down at verse 21. Now, in that day, the day of destruction, right? The day that Judah, as well as the land of Israel is ruined by their enemies in that day a man may keep alive a heifer and a pair of sheep meaning there is there's no farm right there's no animals he's down to three animals that's all they have and because of the abundance of the milk produced he will eat curds for everyone that is left within the land will eat curds and honey what he's saying is everybody's dead no one has hardly any animals and so the diet of choice is curds and honey that that's all there is available See, you have to read ahead to know how to interpret curds and honey. So now go back to 14 and 15. 14 and 15 say Emmanuel is going to come and he's going to eat curds and honey. Meaning, when Emmanuel is born, what's going to what? What's the condition of the land going to be? It's going to be desolate. Okay. So we know this child doesn't come until when? Till the land is desolate. Now, now remember. It doesn't just say the northern kingdom is desolate. We're talking about the southern kingdom being desolate also. Because verses 17 all the way down to verse 25 describe the destruction of Judah, not just the destruction of Israel. The southern kingdom, not just the the, um, destruction of the northern kingdom. Okay? So look at this. We got the house of David clue. We talked about that. We got the plural use of you. We got that. Have you noticed this too? Is this the only time we see the name Emmanuel? Where else do we see the the name Emmanuel? Did you guys read this chapter? Did you do your homework? You're looking at me like, verse 14. No, no, no. It occurs two other times in this section. Read on, Lizzie. Right? You need to keep reading the context. Look at chapter 8, verse 8. Then it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass through. It will reach even to the neck and the spread of its wings. And this is talking about the destruction of the land of Judah, okay? And the spread of its wings will fill the breadth of your land, oh, so what does that tell us about Emmanuel? Do you want me to just tell you what it means? You know, I, I do not want to rob you of the joy of figuring this out on your own. Okay, so you need to engage your hermeneutical brain even though you need more coffee. I, I understand that. It says his, land. his land. What land? The whole land of Judah. Belongs to Who? Now, if you were to do some study on this phrase, and we don't have time to do it, if you were to do this study, you would find that no other place in the whole Bible is land described like this, meaning, your land, O Emmanuel. The the land of Judah is never ascribed to a person like it is here. So we could say, well, the king of Judah kind of owns the land. No, 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 it's never used that way in the Bible. So this Emmanuel owns this land in a way that is unique in the whole of Scripture. Okay, where else does it show up? Emmanuel occurs one other time. Now, even before we get, to, yeah, does it occur in Matthew? I'm talking in the Old Testament. What's that? Okay, thirty where? Thirty twenty eight. All right. Okay. Is that a misreference? Okay. All right. Someone else. Okay. Go back to chapter eight. You looked at verse eight. Breath of your land, O Emmanuel. Look at verse nine. Be broken, O peoples. Be shattered. Give ear. All remote places of the earth, gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Verse 10, devise a plan, but it will be thwarted. State a proposal, but it will not stand for... See, where's Emmanuel? Okay. Now, this is another thing. Remember, I I think I showed you this last time, that... um, Emmanuel is actually a combination of words. Eam, I am em is the word with. New is the it's a pronomal suffix, it's it's a pronoun that means us, and L is the abbreviation for what? God. So that's where we get the idea when you, when you scrump all that, push all that together, glue those pieces together, you, you turn it into a proper noun, a name, that means God with us. Now, that same sequence occurs in chapter 8, verse 10, but look at how it's translated. How's it translated? It's, yeah, it's, tr- it's explained. See, Emmanuel is just taking the Hebrew words and turning it into a name god with us is actually translating each of those words into english but it's the same phrase so we got a manual in verse 14 we've got a manual in chapter eight verse 8 and we've got a manual in chapter 8 verse 10 now what do we learn about him in verse 10 what does he do in verse 10 That's right. Emmanuel is the sole source of security for the nations against their enemies. And that's what this section is talking about. Though this slaughter of Judah is going to come, though the, the destruction of Israel is going to come, there will be a remnant. And God will once again restore that land and He will thwart all of the future plans of the enemies and He alone will provide security. So what are we learning What's the Stephen Curtis Chapman song about this baby? You heard that one, the Christmas song? This is not an ordinary baby. This is not an ordinary child. Now let me ask you this. Don't think about Matthew yet. Don't think about Christmas yet. Just thinking about the immediate context. Is this a baby that possibly could have been born in Ahaz's day? Okay, except for one. There was one they knew would not happen. You're you're right. Some of them could have happened in their lifetime. but there's one that Isaiah, at least, and the nation, if they were listening, knew would not happen in their lifetime. What was it? The invasion of Judah, right? Isaiah was told at the beginning of his prophecy that Judah would not be invaded, okay? So we know, historically, contextually, that this could not, everything we know about Emmanuel, just in these two chapters, we're not talking about Christmas and Messiah, just within these two chapters, we know, when we look at all the data, this could not have been a normal baby born in this day. Now I know what you're thinking, you're saying, wait a minute, but it says, look at this, it says, um, "Before verse 16 of chapter 7, before the boy know." will know enough to refuse evil and choose good. The land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Doesn't that sound like it has to happen at that time? Well, I'm glad you asked. We talked about Kurds and Huddy, right? Syntax is important. Here's what that verse actually says. Because before. See, my Bible says, for before the boy will know enough, but that little word for is actually telling us the cause. That's why I've translated on the board there, because. So so you need to get this. Verse 16 is not saying the child has to be born at the time that these two kings die. What it says, look, look again. This is one of those things where you, you, you think you know what it means until you actually look closer. What it actually says is, the child will be born into the time when the nation, when the land is desolate. That's what it says. And that's why he's going to eat curds and honey, because it's, it's desolate. It, it's poverty stricken. So it doesn't actually say in verse 16 that this has to happen in Ahaz's lifetime. What it does say is the child's going to come sometime after the land is desolated. That's what it does say. Okay, now pull the car over for a minute. Look up at me for a moment. Are you totally confused, or do you understand this? It's tough, isn't it, Tom? Right? Okay. There's a lot here, and and familiar passages like this, we think we know what they mean until we look at them, and we have to look at them, really understanding the context and the data. Okay. Well, and in Christmas, we're looking. We're looking backward, right? And we're looking at the fulfillment of it. But see, I want you to see here, and this is important. We've not done anything in the New Testament yet, have we? And that's why I tried to graciously put off Jack's question, not because it was a bad question, but because that's a question to consider in a moment. We want to just look at the immediate context. We want to understand this the way that the recipients that heard Isaiah would have understood this. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. the land itself was not at that time. Well, but think about it. Think about it. From the standpoint of what? Desolate in terms of the diet. Well, Jesus was born. Where was he born? Okay, to a couple that was poor. poor. Okay, so that fits. But remember, the prophecy about the the poverty and the desolation of the land is linked to what key group of people that the prophecy the sign is given to you remember house the house of david and who is on the throne when jesus the messiah is finally born nobody that's the point so it's not just the land is desolate it's that we have lost the succession of davidic kings and that is a part of the uh the prophecy given here too so it's it's desolate it is poverty and it is most importantly a reality that the house of David has, has disintegrated until Jesus shows up. But it's a, it's a good question because you have to look at all three of those things for it to fit, okay? And, and you know, and th- this partially explains why, and there's other prophecies that do this, why did Jesus have to be born into poverty? We talk about well, his association with the poor and he's the savior of the world, uh, you know, all people, not just kings, right? That's true, but it does connect back to this prophecy, um, and, and, I, and, I, and I can tell you, if we were to interview the average Israelite in the day that Jesus was born in Roman occupation, they would say, you know what, we're not living in prosperity. Because pro- prosperity to them was they had a king on their throne running the theocracy of the nation of Israel. Um, so, but I appreciate the question. That's a really good question. Okay. Uh, Noah and Alan... And Ernie, can you guys pass these out? I didn't want you guys to cheat by looking ahead. I don't trust you. No, not at all. Okay, pass those out quickly. Let's talk about, because I know I wanted to do that exercise with you without you having a back page of notes, okay? Because I, I wanted you to think this through honestly. So now let's talk about solutions. How do we take all this and put this together? <clears throat> Thank you, gentlemen, for doing that. Keith, I think it's worth mentioning that other interpreters who tried to make this a normal event uh-huh. and point to this you know, one of the sons of Isaiah. The right. We'll talk about that in just a minute. This that a sign. Yes. that's correct it had to it had to be something significant so a baby that happened to be born if so if we take virgin as maiden and there's a baby that just happens to be born and mom happens to and they named him na- emmanuel there's nothing significant about that especially since they knew the prophecy in advance so you're, you're absolutely right but w- we will talk in a moment about what some of the other viewpoints say in terms of you know is this isaiah's son is this ahaz's son is this you know maher um the the big the guy with the big long name swift as a booty swift as a prey Okay, so you have your solutions now, okay? So let's walk through this because I want you to walk away today not confused, but having clarity. That's why I wanted to hand you a second set of notes. I just didn't want you to see them too quickly, okay? So number one, God through Isaiah is speaking to the house of David, not just Ahaz. We established that, right? The change of language, the fact that he uses the term house of David in 13, he uses the plural of you in verse 11. Number two, virgin means virgin, And uh, we don't have time to do the word study on that and to look into all that. But um, for those of you that are interested, um, you know, there's Alma. That's the word used here. There's Bethula, which is the other word in Hebrew. And then there's Parthenos, which is the word that Jack alluded to in Greek that we'll talk about in a minute. And if you're interested in all that and you're caught up and it might be young woman, then talk to me. And I'm glad to provide you exegetical help on that. But just for now, know that. The best dictionaries, the best understanding of how this works in the actual Old Testament is that our word here in verse 14, Alma, uh, is rightly translated virgin as all your versions represent. Now, Emmanuel can't be maher. Look at chapter 8, verse uh, uh, 2. Okay. Um, Now, this goes back to what Dave just said. Some interpreters say, well, hey... Chapter 8 talks about a child being born. The language is actually similar. So why can't we say Emmanuel is the child born in chapter 8? Now, we haven't gotten to chapter 8 yet, but let's just get our idea, understand a little bit of what it's about. Chapter 8, verse 2. I will take to myself, this is God talking, I will take to myself faithful witnesses for a testimony, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of uh, Jebershachah, And so, and then now this is Isaiah talking, verse 3. So I approached the prophetess, and we assume that that means Isaiah's wife, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. Then the Lord said to me, name him Macher Shahal Hashbaz, which means swift is the booty, speedy is the prey, talking about the the utter speed with which the land would be taken over. Okay, now again, when you signed up to be a prophet the first thing God said is, turn in your baby name book. Because you didn't have the freedom to name your kids whatever you want to name, right? You see another example of that right here. And, and notice the language. For before the boy knows how to cry out, my father, my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of, Sam- of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So it's a similar sounding thing. Now, why can we not assume that Emmanuel is the same as Maher? Yes, okay, because it's specific. It's a different name. So that's evidence number one. What's the second evidence? He's not God. God. What's the third evidence? How they were conceived, conceived. yeah. Isaiah is married to his wife. You say, how do we know that? Because they talked about their other son in the beginning of chapter seven. Okay, not a virgin. virgin. Yeah, so it doesn't qualify. So that's where some of the other interpreters that say, see, it was Isaiah's son. You know, it, it doesn't work because there's conflicting evidence. Number three, the sign, listen closely, the sign is that Emmanuel will be born into poverty because the land will be desolate due to the unfaithfulness of the house of David. Curds and honey is a diet of poverty, not prosperity. That's the sign. The sign. And this is what you've got to see. We get so caught up on the virgin birth, and we should, because that's a part of it. But that's a part of it looking to the future. What was the sign in Ahaz's day? Here was the sign. Your disobedience to not believe the report of the Lord means that your successors will be judged. You are being judged right now for your disobedience and the Messiah, the the king that we're all awaiting for because of your disobedience will be born into poverty. Because this is the turning point. Ahaz is the turning point in the kings of Judah that never gets reestablished. You say, what about Hezekiah? Well, Hezekiah tried his best to pull out. But all of the kings of Judah from this point on go the wrong way. And then Babylon comes in in 586 and we don't have kings in Israel or Judah anymore forever until Jesus shows up. So it is the sign that the virgin will be with child. Yes, is the sign that we're going to name him God with us. Yes, but in the immediate context, the sign is Ahaz disobeyed, and so as an act of judgment, God told Ahaz the Messiah, the 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 final king who's going to show up will be born into poverty, as a reminder of your disobedience. Wow, how'd you be? How'd you like to be the? uh, it's track and field season in our family how'd you like to be the guy handing the baton to the anchor leg right the last guy to run it to the finish line and you drop it you you fumble the handoff that's that's what god is saying here he's saying ahaz you fumbled the handoff and it's not going to be the same until the messiah comes okay back to the notes here are you with me is this making sense Now, the timing of the child's birth is tricky. We need to acknowledge that. Other viewpoints that say, you know, maybe there was a baby in Ahaz's time and maybe there was, you know, Jesus that was born. Maybe there's two here. You know, there's some legitimacy to that. But but here's what what I think the people that have to have an immediate fulfillment, here's what they don't understand. Though it sounds eminent, and you can can read this and say, you know, it does sound like this is something that, that could happen. When you look at all the evidence, what do you find out? The sign is actually that the land of Israel and Syria will will be desolate. That's 716. And that Judah will be in ruins. That's 17 to 25. We cannot look up for a second. We cannot stop reading at verse 16 and say, oh, we know everything. Finish the chapter. You've got to finish the chapter or you're going to be prone to misinterpreting the text. And this is not just true with this text. If you're trying to figure out what a Bible verse says, read the whole chapter. Read the whole chapter again, read before, read after, read the whole book. Um, read, read how it fits in the whole canon of the Bible. We are, we are most prone to make interpretive errors when we get tunnel vision, we get biblical tunnel vision, we just look at our little verse, once, and we forget that, hey, maybe if we, we finish the verse, finish the, the whole chapter, we're going to learn things that help us to interpret it properly. And that's what happens here judah being in ruins is part of the prophecy and we know that that doesn't happen until 586 bc well well after the time that ahaz dies and we know that that desolation happens while the child is still young so it's not like he can be born in ahaz's time and then you know hundreds of years well about a 100 years later um then that comes so so we understand that it's got to be in the future now notice this, and, and again, push back. I'm, I'm, I'm open for questions. Let's have a good discussion here if you don't agree. The text doesn't actually say that Ahaz will witness the birth of the child, does it? It doesn't say that. It says that when he begins to mature, he, he knows enough uh, before he knows enough to know right from wrong, the land will be desolate and he's going to eat the food of poverty. That's what it does say. Well, that, that's true, with, with, and I agree with you that in the big picture he is talking about the house of, of, of David, but look at verse 16. Uh, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. That you is singular, so that is talking to Ahaz there. So he does circle back to Ahaz. But here's the thing. Even then it doesn't say Ahaz is going to witness the birth of the child. It's saying to Ahaz, this judgment has come upon you because of your disobedience and the land will be desolate uh, when this child is born. Okay, but you're right, Dave. The overall the overall message is for the whole house of David, not specifically to Ahaz. He is included as part of that. Uh, third, since Judah will, will not be in ruins till the Babylonians invade in 586 BC, the child cannot come until after this event, well after Ahaz's death. right um well that's going to be back man where is that i don't think i gave you a reference i don't think i have one here yeah it's a it's an um let let me do this let me let me get something specific for you there we know that uh because when isaiah is called well let me see if i can find find it real quick here um Yet he alludes to it in chapter six at the end of his ministry, right? Remember, he says, how, how long am I supposed to prophesy? And he says, till the point that destruction comes. So Isaiah's ministry would be marked by their are not hearing, they're not hearing, they're not hearing, they're not hearing. And at the end of all of that, that's when uh, the destruction would happen. And so he talks about it there uh, in verse, um, in verse 11 of chapter six. Alright? But let, let me let me get some better references for you there. Okay. That seems to be the key. But you said that's the only thing that could not have At the time. Of Ahaz, right. The train, right. Well, y- yes, and then and then I'm going to say a couple other things that'll that'll push it back even further. But yeah, that is significant. There it is significant. Okay? So going back to Jack's question right now, Emmanuel must be a, a special child because he is born of a virgin. We talked about that. He uniquely possesses the land of Israel. We saw that. He alone will provide the security of Israel from its enemies. We saw that. Now, there's one other link, and here we have to look in the broader context. When do we hear about the house of David or some reference to David again? Well, flip the page to chapter 9. Chapter nine, verse six, for a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Interesting because the title Mighty God here connects with what? God with us, doesn't it? So those two titles link in some way. His name will be called uh, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace for what? On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. So now we see that the child Emmanuel as a reference to the house of David. Now in chapter 9, we're linked here to another event that this, this child uh, is going to sit on the throne of his father David. Now, going back to Jack's question, could that feasibly, could that could have, could have happened in the life of, of Isaiah? Yeah, it could have. There, there's nothing here that says it, it can't. Um, but we see here that we're, we're adding layers to the prophecy here which make it less and less likely that this is something that's going to happen, uh, at least in, I, in Ahaz's time. Now, Uh, And maybe the better way to come at it is to say it like this. There's nothing in the context that makes this prophecy have to happen in Ahaz's time. I think that you can read it in a way that you say, well, it could have. It could have. But there's nothing that says it has to. And, uh, And that's maybe a better way to think about it. So his association on your notes there with the house of David here links him with the Davidic king's with the Davidic king in chapter 9, verse 7. Okay. Now, going back to to several of you that have asked about uh, the New Testament, Um, I think most of you are aware that um, a couple hundred years before the time of Christ, the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek. Everybody is familiar with that? A translation of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint, and you've probably seen it referenced. The abbreviation for the septuagint is LXX. And you say, how do you get septuagint and LXX? Anybody know where that abbreviation comes from? It's not an acronym. It's a Roman numeral. I'll give you that much. What's, in, in Roman numerals, L is what? 50. What's X? Ten and another X is another ten, so you have fifty plus ten plus ten gives you a total of. So why is the septuagint abbreviated as 70? seventy? Translators. Seventy translators. That's right. The, the tradition the tradition is that there were seventy scholars that translated the Old Testament into Greek. So that's why we that's why we abbreviate it with LXX, the Roman numeral. Okay. Now, in Greek. So, so these 70 scholars are translating the bible into greek and when they get to this verse in chapter 7:14 they looked at that word virgin and they looked at their greek dictionaries and they said you know what the best the best word to translate that word is the word parthenos and parthenos is the greek word for virgin and unlike the word in 7:14 which meh, it, Could it be young maiden? Well, maybe it's never used like that in the Bible, but maybe it could, sort of, maybe. The Greek word is ironclad clear. So the word that these Jewish scholars use to translate this verse into Greek verifies our interpretation of the word virgin. Okay, does that make sense? You didn't know you were coming to Bible class today, did you? Before the New Testament, 250 B.C. But when Matthew's, mm-hmm. Matthew, Matthew, but when Matthew's saying this, mm-hmm. I mean, he, he's the one translating it, right? Because he's saying, now all of this took place that what was spoken by the Lord, and then he right. it. So it's, it's Matthew saying this in whatever language he's using at that point. Right? Okay. So it's not just the Septuagint. I'm glad you said that. Okay, so now go to Jack's point. Matthew uses the same more specific root in Matthew 123. Yeah, so you're right. so he's going to use the same the same uh, word that the Septuagint translators use to translate. So both of them, both Matthew and the Septuagint translators picked this more precise word when they translated Isaiah. We, we, well, he could be looking at a Hebrew manuscript or he could be looking at the Greek Old Testament translation. We don't know. But the point is, Matthew, who is writing an inspired text, chooses the more precise word to translate Isaiah 7.14. But, but my question is, yes. he's doing that, right. language that he's speaking at that point, because he's saying this, right? He's quoting it. Yes. Okay, well, I think I follow you. Let's let's actually look at the text here, okay? So, Matthew chapter 1. So, what, what Jack's point is, is that Matthew is the narrator in the book of the gospel of Matthew, right? And so, Matthew is interpreting for the audience, for the people that are reading the book of Matthew what just happened right that you know the angel came and spoke and mary conceived right and so here, here's what he said um matthew says this in 122 now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the lord through the prophet verse 23 behold the virgin shall be with child and i think tell me if i'm right jack's point is that matthew is telling his audience interpreting isaiah 7:14. it's virgin that's your point okay that's correct And that's what matters. Right. That's what really matters, yeah. I assume he's saying it in Hebrew. New Testament's written in Greek, but he's speaking to his audience in what Hebrew writing. Well, remember Matthew... Well, uh, okay, so so, so we don't know what Matthew would have spoken. What's significant is what did Matthew write? because what he wrote is the inspired text. So that's really, uh, most of these guys spoke multiple languages, but when he picked up his pen to write, he wrote in Greek. And so the Holy Spirit inspiring him in terms of the text that he wrote is writing that more precise word Parthenos, which is the which is the accurate word there. So I, I think I'm understanding you, and I think your point is, is really, really superior, because um, Matthew's explanation his divinely inspired explanation of 714 is this is a virgin who was with child yeah. Yeah. okay now uh, on your notes there these facts affirm the interpretation of virgin in 714 okay so here's our conclusion if, if you missed everything else if you conked out if you did not get your coffee before class today i am sorry so here's here's the summary okay Because of Ahaz's disobedience as the representative of the house of David, Isaiah prophesied that a special child, the Messiah himself, would not be born into the expected prosperity fit for a king into a nation that was flourishing victorious over its enemies. Instead, the child will be born into poverty, specifically as a demonstration of judgment on the unfaithfulness of Ahaz while also demonstrating God's faithfulness to preserve the Davidic line by sparing Ahaz from the threat he anticipated from Pekah and Rezin. That's, that's the best I can do in one paragraph, okay? Um, and then, you know, we go to Matthew and we see how this unfolds in, in the fullness of time. But for the purposes of the morning, I, what I hope that this does is to help you to see that when you have a, a difficult passage, you want to study it in its context, read the whole context, read what's really there, not what you think is there. Um, Tyler's not here, but, you know, guys in law enforcement are trained in this, when they do witnesses, you know how witnesses see all sorts of different things, right? And, 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 you know, law enforcement, you know, they're trained to, you know, what actually happened and whatnot. And that happens in the Bible sometimes. Sometimes we, we, we think something is there until we really look and really study it. And um, so when you come to a passage like this, study in its context, try to do that. In this case, we do have a, a New Testament uh, uh, commentary on it. So it's good to go to the New Testament and verify our interpretation um, but that's good. Uh, yeah, Daryl. One question. Was it disobedience? Was that God's will? that he be disobedient? Was it God's will? that he be disobedient? In other words, was that his plan? Yeah, so... So it, it would not have been his moral will, because it's never the moral will of God to disobey God, but it was in his sovereign, li- on, in his sovereign will in terms of using it in his plan. That's right. Yeah, for his, for his plan. right. For his yes. You know. Yeah, because it's part of how this unfolds, right? Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. the audio are and when i keep up with our secretary the notes are too yeah or, or just email ac and she can she can help you with that okay thanks for hanging in there guys i know it was a little bit technical but hopefully hopefully this helped us and it's what you wanted right you signed up for you know hard passages and this, okay so there we go uh, lord thank you for our time today and how we thank we thank you that um, the promised messiah did come and that he was born to a virgin he was born into poverty and he came Uh, as a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant that uh, you would install a king and uh, that king would rule and reign in your name and shepherd your people. Uh, Father, we're grateful for the time together that we can learn how to study our Bibles better, uh, make us confident in the scriptures, and uh, thank you for our time today. Uh, We are grateful for the Lord Jesus, and we pray in his name. Amen.